This is David Ze'ev in Israel. This is episode two of our podcast, coming to you through jewishcoffeehouse.com and our producer, Scott Kahn. And we're also grateful to report that many of the personalities who have been a part of my Israeli public radio broadcasts over the years are sticking with us to be a part of the David Ze'ev in Israel podcast. One of them is Aaron David Miller. In my earlier years, I covered Miller when he was a member of what they called the U.S. State Department's Middle East Peace Team, together with the likes of Dennis Ross and Martin Indyk. Between 1988 and 2003, Miller served six secretaries of state as an advisor on Arab-Israeli negotiations and participated in American efforts some successful and some not so much, to broker agreements between Israel, with Jordan, Syria, and the Palestinians. He left the Department of State in 2003 to serve as president of Seeds of Peace, an international youth organization. In 2006, Miller joined the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, where he is to this day, currently as vice president for new initiatives. Days before current President Donald Trump decides whether to stay with the Iran nuclear accord from 2015, demand changes from the other five world powers with whom the deal was negotiated with Tehran, or pull out of the accord altogether, we asked Aaron David Miller where we are headed. Well, why don't you ask me who's going to win the World Series? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's impossible to predict. There are any number of different options decertify again, as he's done twice, and yet not reimpose punitive sanctions, continue to waive sanctions for another 120 days, don't waive sanctions uh, now and reimpose tougher ones in July when the next tranche comes due, or least likely, I suspect, make a statement that you've decided, based on the progress they've made with the Europeans, to essentially give negotiations more time. Frankly, my own view is, regardless of whether Mr. Trump stays in it or withdraws this time around, that this version of the JCPOA is going to die either by a death of one or two cuts or by a thousand. I mean, this is not a religious experience or a Major League Baseball game. It can't be saved. It can be saved if, in large part, the United States accepts certain assumptions and premises that they're not prepared to accept. Number one, that this is a highly flawed yet still viable functional deal. Number two, Iran's behavior in the region, which is egregious, not just defensive, designed to counteract Iranian insecurity. And the Iranians have a strong case over the years that they have threatening neighbors, both inside the region and outside. Uh, But the Iranians are also behaving very provocatively in Syria. And I, I think creating an option for an extended northern front should a a real confrontation emerge, but the administration would have to essentially do something that seems to me, at least rhetorically, they're not prepared to do, which is to essentially ignore and not confront Iran in the region, and they're not not prepared to do that. Well, just to take that point further in terms of the northern border, is there a threat between Israel and Iran getting into some sort of, even if not war, is something pretty close to it? Well, the question is, what what does that mean? I hear talk of all-out war between Israel and Iran, and I'm not entirely sure we're being clear in defining our terms. Isn't an Israeli-Iranian confrontation a sort of tit-for-tat between Israel 
using its air superiority in Syria, which it still maintains despite the presence of more sophisticated air defense systems against Iranian military bases or storage or weapons depots, that's one option. Is it is an Iranian-Israeli war a direct confrontation in which Israel strikes Iran directly with missiles or, again, fighter aircraft and, and or Iran responds directly against Israel? Or is an Iranian-Israeli confrontation a confrontation that uh, is derived from uh, another Hezbollah-Israeli war along the lines of 06. And I think it's unclear now. All I do know is that you have a level of attention and lack of forbearance among the Israelis or between the Israelis and, and Iran that you haven't experienced before. The so-called shadow war appears to have have been now out in the open. Right. So I, I don't know. I think my basic point about the JCPOA is it's a complicated agreement. It's a flawed agreement. It's not. It was never intended as a transformation, although perhaps some individuals in the Obama administration believed it would be. It's a, it was a transactional deal. It was an arms control agreement. And of course, there's the so sunset clause. It doesn't last for another decade or so. Yeah, I mean, that's it. Again, and then like, afterwards, like other, like many arms control agreements, this one would would presumably, in a galaxy far, far away, would have to be supplemented by additional understandings and, and accords. Look, there's a certain reality here that I think people are not prepared to accept, but at least analytically you have to accept. And that is this, once scientific knowledge enters the consciousness of a nation's scientists, it's virtually impossible to expunge or extract it. And in a nation like Iran, driven by a profound sense of grandiosity on one hand and profound insecurity on the other, there is absolutely no way that we are going to ever be able to get 100% assurances that the Iranians do not want to maintain and will maintain the capacity, should they choose to weaponize, to go relatively quickly to the production of enough fissile material to make a weapon. So maybe this is the unless perfect you, segue, unless, Aaron. Mm -hmm. Unless you change the, the acquisitive character, right. that is to say the, Iran, the Iranian regime's desire to be a screwdriver's turn away from the eventuality that uh, that I outlined. I mean, outside of the five permanent members of the Security Council, all of whom have nuclear weapons, you've got India, couldn't stop them. You've got Pakistan, couldn't stop them. You've got the Israelis, couldn't stop them. <clears throat> you've got the North Koreans, and clearly you haven't been able to stop them. So that's the basic reality. So but the fact that do? Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu last week made his presentation about the records that the Mossad uncovered, does that put more pressure on President Trump and perhaps the Europeans to do something about this JCPOA, which you've been describing by its acronym, the Iran nuclear deal? Or are the Europeans just saying, no, no, we knew all of this already? No, I mean, I think there's some genuine lapses of what people knew and what they didn't know based on the revelations. Now, whether or not what's been revealed can be used to go back to the Iranians for additional negotiations, I don't know. But look, I think there's a certain logic here. You'll have to help me explain it. This president, Mr. Trump, is about to, at the end of this month or early next, sit down with a man whom he has described as honorable, to negotiate on nuclear weapons he already has. The leader of, you're talking about the leader of North Korea now, correct? Kim Jong-un, Kim right. Jong-un, right. a.k.a. KJU. This man has presided over the mass murder and killings of his own people. 
and yet we are prepared to sit with him, okay, and negotiate a deal. So I ask the obvious question. Iran is not our friend. Iran is not our ally. The Iranians are a serial human rights abuser. They're an extractive authoritarian regime that demonstrates severe cruelty to their opponents. But are they worse than North Korea? So my question is, if the question here is nix or fix, then I'll ask you the question. Why won't the United States go directly with the Europeans or without in the context of the JCPOA to negotiate a supplemental accord to deal with the inadequacies, and there are many, of the agreement? It's a very Mm -hmm. interesting question. And I think if you look at the answer, it's a very strange one. Either Mr. Trump, because the Iranians are behaving no worse than the North Koreans. So either Mr. Trump believes that this is Obama's agreement and he's not interested in sustaining it, which I think is a large part of the problem, or there's a large factor of this that is being driven by the Israelis, or the politics of the moment simply don't offer Mr. Trump negotiating with Iran what North Korea offers him, which essentially is a ride into the history books and the real, the very real possibility if he pulls something off of a Nobel Peace Prize. From the U.S., we were speaking to Aaron David Miller, Laura Wharton, born in the USA, but who then moved to Israel as a young adult, has been with us on the radio broadcasts as well. She is a Jerusalem City Council member from the Meretz Party. This week, she talks to us on David Zeev in Israel about the upcoming U.S. dedication of an embassy in Jerusalem. How does she view such a move? I think it's not the right time for such um, a move. I think, first of all, there's so much pressure now around all kinds of other things. If it's um, threats from farther away, if it's problems in the southern border, the northern border, I think to try to move forward on this now is not a good idea. Apart from which, from what I see and understand, there's actually not going to be a move of the embassy yet. It's kind of a, a fictive event and that um, basically there'll be some of the functions of the embassy will be moved to the consulate, but not more than that. And finally, I think it's a little bit of a non-event in that it would make sense to me of having some kind of event and celebration if there were something to celebrate. But in fact, there are no new agreements about Jerusalem, about the future of Jerusalem, about responsibility for Jerusalem. And I think it's a little bit premature to have kind of a a celebration about moving the embassy when we don't even know what, if any, are the agreements about the boundaries of the city or how it's going to be run. Laura, you say it's not the right time, among other things, in addition to the fact that you say it's more symbolic than really establishing facts on the ground anyway. But there are those who are saying, if we're talking about timing, it's long overdue. Jerusalem is Israel's capital. Why does Israel have to worry about what others might say, how it might impact on events around us? Sometimes we just have to stand up for what's right. And if the Americans are saying the embassy belongs in Jerusalem, who are we to say no? Well, I think, um, first of all, President Trump is not the first president to say that. I was just going to say that um, President Bush, President Clinton, President Obama all mentioned publicly that they see Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And the question is, what has changed since then? 
And my answer is not very much. So in principle, you're saying that an embassy should be moved to Jerusalem only once what? We have a permanent status agreement with the Palestinians? Once we have, first of all, some understanding of, yes, of what the status will be in the future. And second of all, I think that if anyone, certainly if the United States wants to help make some sort of progress in this area and in Israel and the status of Jerusalem, it shouldn't be a a one-sided decision. I would hope that there would be two embassies in Jerusalem, one in the western part, which would be Israel's, and one in the eastern part, which would be the state of Palestine when it is eventually founded. There are many who believe, Laura Wharton, Jerusalem City Council member from Meretz, that what President Trump is doing now, more than anything else, more than, let's say, proceeding with a Middle East peace treaty of some sort or a campaign to try to reach such a treaty, he's really just trying to reach his fan base, his electorate, those who voted for him, many of whom support this kind of move. And at the same time, though, there are plans, whether they are just symbolic or not, that the Americans are reportedly coming forward with proposals for a future deal between Israel and the Palestinians. And at the very least, perhaps, an Israeli gesture is what the Trump administration is demanding to agree to withdraw from some of the Arab neighborhoods in Jerusalem, which I know you support, you would support such a move. You're saying that Jerusalem is not really a united city anyway. If the Trump administration comes forward with a package deal, we're moving symbolically or otherwise, the embassy to Jerusalem, but also calling on Israel to withdraw from these neighborhoods. Is that a step in the right direction? Well, again, if it's if it's a piecemeal move... Peace as no. in P-I-E-C-E, not P-E-A-C-E, right. Exactly. A piecemeal approach. No, I mean, I think that it's premature to have any kind of symbolic uh, celebration of any decision. Uh, I do think, and I'm quite sure that eventually the Palestinian neighborhoods will be separated from Israel and will uh, maybe even in the near future given some sort of autonomy. And I think that to... Um, have some kind of unilateral decision about moving the embassy makes no sense. And I think even if it were a real move, I would question the timing of it. But since it's basically a a fictive event, I think it's very untimely because I think that it's causing more friction and more damaging to peace, to calm in the area than contributing. One final point, if I may, an internal issue. I understand there are some merits doings within the Jerusalem City Council within the next whatever week or so, correct? We're having primaries on the 15th of May. I'm running for the head of the faction for the next term. And we have, yes, a lively, uh, lively discussions now about what our list will look like and who will be at the head of the list. The question of Jerusalem is actually one that we agree on. The Jerusalem branch of Meretz already put forward and brought to the Meretz caucus um, a year or so ago um, a statement about how we envision the future of Jerusalem, and it is not very similar to what um, Trump is trying to present at this point. Jerusalem City Council member Laura Wharton from the Meretz party. Finally, this week, Michael Freund is someone I first encountered when he worked actually in the prime minister's office during Benjamin Netanyahu's first term back in the 1990s. Since then, Freund moved on to found Shave Israel. I founded Shave Israel more than 15 years ago with the aim of reaching out to descendants of Jews, to lost tribes and hidden Jewish communities, and 
helping to strengthen their connection with Israel and the Jewish people. I got into this field of endeavor uh, actually when I was working at the prime minister's office for Benjamin Netanyahu during his first term of office. It was back in the spring of 1997 when a small orange envelope arrived from a community in northeastern India known as the B'nai Menasheh, or the children of the tribe of Manasseh, who claimed that their ancestors had been exiled from the land of Israel 2,700 years ago, and they wanted to return. I became involved in helping that community, and in 1999, when Mr. Netanyahu left office, I began reading up about other far-flung Jewish communities, and I simply got on the plane and started visiting all these places, and I saw rather quickly that there are communities out there that were once part of the Jewish people and that have a strong historical connection with us, but no one was doing anything in a concerted fashion to reach out to them or to try and help them to learn more about their heritage. Briefly, Michael, if you could just tell us how many different places you're talking about beyond the B'nai Menashe in India, where else? Well, we currently work in more than a dozen countries around the world with a variety of communities. Uh, In addition to the B'nai Menashe, we also work with the Chinese Jews of Kaifeng in China, with the uh, B'nai Anusim, whom historians refer to by the derogatory term Moranos, in Spain, Portugal, southern Italy, and South America, with the hidden Jews of Poland from the Holocaust, the Sabotnik Jews of the former Soviet Union, and various other communities. Each one is unique in terms of its historical experience, uh, so it's hard to generalize. But what we can say is that in, in recent years, there has been a real awakening among descendants of Jews around the world. And a growing number of them are looking to explore their heritage, to grapple with what it means that their ancestors were once Jews. Is it it mostly that, excuse me, Michael, or is it also perhaps both to bring them to Israel, or is that sometimes too much to ask? The goal is much broader than that. Israel is a small country. The Jewish people are a small nation. We don't have that many friends in the big wide world. On the other hand, there are millions of people out there who have a historical and biological connection to us. And I've seen it time and again that when someone discovers or rediscovers their Jewish roots, it creates an affinity within them for Israel and Jewish causes. So even if someone remains a religious Catholic in Madrid, just the knowledge that his ancestors were once Jews is likely to make him more sympathetic to Israel and Jewish causes. So I think it's in our national interest to be reaching out to these people and building bridges with them, uh, deepening the connection with them. At the end of the day, some of them will choose to come back and rejoin the Jewish people. So it will strengthen us demographically, but that's only one part of a much larger puzzle. We have a strategic asset out there and we need to be mobilizing it. Give us the numbers. How many have come and how many remain back in India? How many do you think perhaps even beyond those you've reached? Well, the B'nai Menashe specifically are all interested in return, geographically to the land of Israel and spiritually to the Jewish people. We've brought uh, more than 3,500 members of the B'nai Menashe on Aliyah, and there are still another 7,000 in India 
all of whom wish to come. And I'm determined to do everything necessary in order to ensure that every last one of them who wants to come home to Jerusalem is able to do so. The issue, though, of the Bnei Menashe entails when they come to Israel to have to undergo a conversion process, correct? And one of the reasons I'm having you this week is that I saw on your Facebook post a particular family, among others perhaps, going through and completing now the conversion process. Why do they have to go through the conversion process? And tell me a bit about that process. Well, back in uh, March of 2005, the Spartan chief rabbi of Israel, Rabbi Shlomo Amar, formally recognized the Bnei Menashe as Zera Yisrael, as descendants of Israel in a philosophical sense. And he also ruled that they should be brought back to our people. And in doing so, on an individual basis, they each need to go through a conversion process to remove any doubts about their status. And that, in fact, is what happens. So uh, we recently brought, back in March, a group of 204 B'nai Menashe on Aliyah. And once they have arrived, they go through the conversion process under the auspices of the chief rabbinate of Israel. And God willing, in June, we're going to be bringing another group of 240 B'nai Menashe on Aliyah, and they too will, will go through that process. Once they complete it, they uh, receive their Israeli citizenship and new immigrant status, and they are then fully-fledged Jews and Israelis, uh, just like you and me. Has that, in any way, drawn some feelings of resentment from any of the B'nai Menashe that they have to go through this process? Are they resentful of this? In all the years I've been doing this, I have literally encountered one person in the community who expressed to me her pain at being asked to go through a conversion process because she had been raised with uh, a strong Jewish identity and a strong sense of being a Jew. But that's really the exception. As a community, they accept the fact that uh, they were cut off for 27 centuries, and it facilitates their absorption process in Israel because then no one can question their Jewishness. No mm -hmm. one can raise doubts about who they are. If anyone's interested in finding out more about the Bnei Menashe or the hidden Jews of the Holocaust from Poland or any of the other communities that we work with, please feel free to visit our website at www.shavei.org. Michael Freund, founder and president of Shavei Israel. You've been listening to the David Ze'ev in Israel podcast. This is David Ze'ev together with producer Scott Kahn coming to you through the JewishCoffeeHouse.com podcast network.